Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. It's good that. Isn't it? It's like we've got that down pat now after four it and a half years. <laughs> You'd think after four and a half years we would, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, do we have anything of note to say before we start this show this week? Not really. Flash finished. It was good. You don't watch it. No. End of discussion. My Christmas present arrived. Your Christmas present finally arrived. What was your Christmas the present this year? Three Wild Hunt, the collector's edition. Yes, and it finally arrived in the middle of May. So you only had to wait four and a half months. Uh, five. Five months yeah. for your Christmas present. Was it worth the wait? It has been so far. Oh, have you started playing it? I have. Excellent. <laughs> I've not, so end of conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should we look at an email then? Okie doke. Let's look at an email then. Chris and Cindy Franklin are the first to email in. We appreciate their patronage, Mm -hmm. both of them. Uh, Chris and Andy, no, yes, I'm not Chris and you're not Andy. (laughs) Andy, well, no, that's, what am I doing? He's not even got a salutation today. He's not. That's what's confused me. Chris, you've just gone straight into it, man. No foreplay. That's just, that's what, it just threw me completely off. He does have a, a thing, a subject head in Rockets and such. As much as I love the film The Rocketeer, you'd think I'd own more Rocketeer comics material. There's not really a lot of it. As it stands, I only own the Disney Comics produced movie special and the Pacific Presents that featured his second appearance. That one I picked up at a flea market for next to nothing. I did read the original story in a reprint volume back in my comic shop clerk days in college, but the lone copy was snatched up before I could buy it. I need to get this complete edition. I do love the film and was right there in the theatre when it came out. I wish it had done better. It honestly deserved to be a hit. I also wish Jennifer Connelly would never have gone on that diet, but what you gonna do? Katy Perry wishes she was Betty Page. Nothing really against her, but she's clearly been stealing Betty's shtick from the get-go. Lothar was based on real-life horror actor Rondo Hatton, who actually looks like that. He suffered from acromegalia. Universal cast him in several horror roles, including a B-film series where he played the Creeper. Batman, the animated series, also swiped Hatton's look for a heavy in the Batgirl origin two-parter Shadow of the Bat. There is a horror award named in his honour. Well, that was very informative. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Chris. I can't, I think I vaguely was aware of Rondo Hatton. Like, I've probably read before that the guy in the Rocketeer film was actually based on somebody, right. but it, it disappeared into the far reaches of my brain, superseded by far more important things, such as, there is no way Gwen Stacy could have been pregnant <laughs> because they were in the Savage Land. You're not going to let that go, are you? <laughs> I didn't know Bilson and DeMeo were involved in the sequel. Barry Allen found himself in a Houdini-like water escape in the first Trickster episode of the Flash series. Coincidence? I kind of doubt it. It could have been a coincidence, I suppose. Yeah. Thanks, Chris and Cindy, for emailing it. Luke also emailed in. Luke Jacinetti's back. I've not heard from Luke for a while. 
This was not vengeance, it was punishment. AK-47 Andy and M60 Michael. Just wanted to drop you a quick line after your pair of happy birthday Frank episodes covering Marvel's favourite madman, the Punisher. And I'm not being cute. I've always believed Frank Castle to be quite mad, but when you live in a world as insane as the Marvel Universe, one has to be at least a little mad if you're going to survive. My brother was the Punisher fan growing up in our house and read War Journal faithfully as one of the very big two comics he would buy. Even then, the appeal of the Punisher was the same. A character who's just as quote-unquote normal a guy in a world filled with legends and titans and gods who lived by his own terms and his own rules and who did what he could to mete out justice the best way he could. His response to losing his family made more sense to me than Batman, more Paul Kersey than The Shadow, but that's just a matter of taste. I remember reading the Marvel Knight Angel Punisher in the pages of Wizard and just sighing dramatically and rolling my eyes theatrically. I mean, Marvel had some herbrain schemes over the years, but that may be the worst of them all. It didn't stick indeed. Anyway, I really enjoyed hearing your wide coverage of the different eras of the Punisher. I'm very familiar with the 80s and 90s from my brother, but never dabbled into the Max stuff. The Slaver sounds like a grimy, greasy exploitation film, where the audience is put into the position of cheering for a violent psychopath because he is the lesser of two evils. I never warmed much to Garth Ennis until this past year when I started getting his War Story series at Avatar. After seeing his very effective use of the cinema verite unblinking eye on the various theatres of war in that book, I find myself very interested in checking out his Punisher. Punisher also had some of my favourite covers in the 90s. One which stands out to me is Punisher Warzone 13, showing a suburban domesticated Frank Castle mowing his lawn into a scuttle pattern while newspaper clipping informs us that neighbours described him as a quiet man who'd never bothered anyone. Yikes. Keep rocking, fellas. Thank you, Luke, for emailing in. Nice to hear that you liked the Punisher episodes. Uh, Jason Trent has emailed in, alias, a.k.a. Jessica Jones, a.k.a. supposedly a Spider-Man character, sort of. Greetings, guys, a alias, a series I avoided, to be honest, because I had no interest in it. The first arc especially turned me off from what I heard about it. Sounds like I had the right decision. Bendicisms tend to annoy the crap out of me, and I utterly hate his slow, uh, as insert several swear words of your choice to bleep out, writing. Oh, I can enjoy Bendis' written stuff, but his isms and tics soon rear the ugly head and remind me why I'm not one of his fans. The quotes from Mark Miller and The Ultimates made me laugh. Miller has gone on to sell his projects to Hollywood now, and his Ultimates are getting thrown away in the trash with secret walls. Given they were just cynical retellings... They are, of course, no longer hip and are now, frankly, early noughties artefacts. Whilst the stuff they mocked, they fight over the movie rights for. Proves what a flash in the pan the Ultimates was, wasn't it? Jason then gives us lots of information about various different characters in the book, but then ends by saying he's not bothered with Alias because he's never read it. So it's a good email on something, given that he's never actually read the book. Mm-hmm. So I was quite impressed with that. Uh, thanks, Jason. Robert McDonald emailed in. Matty's fate. Oh, yeah, we asked what happened to Matty Franklin. Didn't Hi. We? Hey, Leyland's loved the Alias podcast. It brought to light many things that bothered me about Bendis' writing that for years I couldn't quite articulate, so thanks. I only have the first two trades of Alias, and for the most part, I get why she's got her own Netflix series. It shows a very damaged young woman who's putting herself back together while trying to reconcile her superhero history and it fits in with how Marvel's set up Daredevil. I have high hopes for the show. Hopefully it will hit 
the same notes as DD. As for your debate as to what happened to Matty Franklin, she was killed, sacrificed during a grim hunt in the Spider-Man stories. It was a tragic and sad end for her. At risk of being crass, I think it was done to cull the herd of Spider-Man characters, which is ironic given how Spider-Verse has given us Spider-Gwen and Silk and another Jessica Drew series. By the way, I think Jessica Jones's crush on Peter Parker was hilarious, especially since Pete keeps teasing Luke about it in New Avengers at the time. Awesome podcast, guys. Rob in Calgary. Oh, well, I've got a question about that. In Alias, did Peter Parker even know Jessica had a crush on him? No. No. So how could Peter tease Luke about it later on? Unless at some point in the Avengers she tells Peter she had a crush on him. Yeah. Now, you've read the Avengers. Do you remember such a scene? I don't remember it, but that's not to say it never happened. Alright, that's fair enough. So it could have happened in Avengers. Yeah. But going purely off Alias, Jessica's crush on Peter was unrequited. She never mentioned it to him. She never told him. She never got the chance. Yeah. So Peter wouldn't be able to tease Luke Cage about it later. So Bendis doesn't even follow the continuity of his own stories, unless it was brought up in an issue of the Avengers. Mm -hmm. In which case I will... I won't apologise because he don't care. But I will take back what I just said. Okay. All right. Our next email is one that arrived uh, a couple of weeks ago and made me laugh hysterically. So I have to try and read it in a Scottish accent in places because okay. he writes in Scottish. Right. Yes. Uh, it's dialectical de devilry. It's Ali Robertson has emailed in, which mm-hmm. is lovely. All right, Leyland Major and Leyland Minor, how goes it? I've been meaning to write in for a donkey's age now, but I am an email sloth with Luddite tendencies, so it's taken me six months of listening to get around to it. Your comparatively frequent missive writer, Matt Evans, who runs the Ultra and Is My Elvis blog, made me first aware of your podcast, and we're going to shout Matt out because he sent me Darth Vader number three. Or was it number four? You know the one that you couldn't get anywhere? Matt said, I don't know why, it's it's in my forbidden planet. So he sent me a copy. So Matt is eternally a top bloke, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. We should have t-shirts made for the people that we We think are top blokes and send them out as uh, prizes. Anyway, Ali continues. Matt and I are vaguely acquainted with each other via the weirdo noise experiment avant-garde music scene of the Scottish Central Belt, which we've both been active on for over a decade. But it was only via the medium of Tinternet that I realised each other that we realised each other are both afflicted with comics problems. Most notably, a twinned obsession with the Giffen de Mateus run of Justice League International from the mid 1980s. I'd never listened to a podcast or even downloaded music before. I told you I was a discipline of Ned Ludd. But, <laughs> but when I buggered my back at work and was signed off work for two weeks and strung out on heavy-duty painkillers, I indulged my curiosity and found that Hey Kids Comics aided my recovery and gave great comfort when my wife took advantage of my ailment and stripped wallpaper from our bedroom walls while I was too drugged up to protest, which resulted in several weeks of DIY bullshit I really couldn't have ass with. So he's, he's rock, couldn't he? Yeah. Come on, he's inviting me to that. Couldn't I be ass with that? Your accent did change, though. Yeah, it, did, it was altered. I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> it was no no problem at all. I do like the idea that to listen to us, he had to be strung out on heavy-duty painkillers. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that is the best way to listen to us. I, I guess so. <laughs> Ali continues, I've been listening regularly since and diving in and out of past episodes, which makes for an unusual experience, as sometimes Michael is a wee boy, and in others he's a wee man. I'm utterly bamboozled that someone as young as Andrew, I do like this man, I think he's a top bloke, could have a 20-year-old son. I'm only a few years Andrew's junior and struggle with the responsibility of owning a cat. 
Your enthusiasm for various stories I've been keen to ignore has piqued my interest repeatedly. I suspect I'm going to have to pick up those Snyder Batmags despite having little, no interest in contemporary DC. And when you announced that there was a Punisher special coming up, I thought, oh no, I can't have stick, Frank Castle. But I'm listening to the first one right now and I'm filled with nostalgia for the stories involving Moses, Magnum and Jigsaw, which I read in UK reprints as a sprog. Anyhow, I've been listening to various folk grumbling about these new costumes for Wonder Woman, Batman and Superman. It strikes me that comics fans are generally averse to change, and whilst I can empathise, I'm not convinced change is a bad thing. Sure, I was upset enough by talk Straczynski's One More Day and the subsequent rejuvenating of Spider-Man, but I quit buying the comic. I'd grown up with Peter Parker. When I was little, he was in college, or at least he was in the UK reprints I was picking up at car boot sales. And over the years, he'd gone to be a married bloke with a mortgage and a job, which I could continue to identify with, as I was, and am, a married bloke with a mortgage and a job. I was upset. It was like one of my pals had died. I would have been happier if they just killed Peter and placed him with Miles Morales. On the other hand, I imagine there was uproar when the post-crisis revamps were announced in the 80s, but I was only eight years old and thought, F*** hell, this is ace! I obviously didn't say that out loud, as my mother would have scalped my ass for having a potty mouth. All this rebooting has been necessary to attract younger readers, and whilst those older farts cringe as characters become unrecognisable to us, it is, of course, essential that comics companies pick up new punters if they are to continue publishing books. We are all slaves to capital. And that's what I see as the real issue. The characters we love were created to make a quick book. The creators never imagined that so many of us would still be obsessing over these ephemeral rags that we read as kids when we were in middle age, or even when we're coughing dodging. Now we want these characters to stay the same, but they will forever be servants of the market. However much we love these imagined people, they're just products. If we really wanted to free them of these constraints, then we would need to look beyond their imagined universes and try to change our own world. With subjects such as these troubling a mind befuddled with painkillers, I used my two sick weeks off to ponder leftist utopian strategies, anti-work politics, post-capitalist imaginaries and superheroic. And being, as I mentioned earlier, entrenched in the experimental music scene, I recorded a new album obsessed with these themes. I have no idea if you'll find it even remotely enjoyable, and I suspect that if you read this email on the show, that last paragraph might have some of your listenership thinking, who is this pinko commie scumbag? But it is to some degree inspired by Hey Kids Comics, so I'll be sending one your way. Best of luck enduring the whole 60 minutes. <laughs> I've been really bummed when Michael goes to college, as I really enjoy your father and son banter reverberating off the walls of my Edinburgh flat. But wish you all the best with future endeavours. Until then, I'll be listening. Cheers for now, Alec. Uh, and he's asked us, would we mind plugging the online home for him and his cartoonist pal, Malsi Duff, and the continuing endeavours of various artistic disciplines, mostly shat out under the name Usurper, and that's available at www.duffandrobertson.tumblr.com. Uh, and uh, we're happy to plug, are we not? Especially after such a magnificent email. Uh, I, I kind of think you, you, you've hit the, the nail squirrely up on the buttocks with that email. They certainly didn't expect that 40-year-olds would still be reading comics. Especially when Batman was created as a Superman ripoff. Yeah, for kids. Yeah. You know. But I think you and I have, have discussed on this before. I think there's a certain part of us having grown up and wanting the characters to grow up with us. But you, that's, that's denying the younger generation. Isn't yeah. it? I mean, if they grew up with us by now, wouldn't Batman be in a wheelchair? And There is that. Stuff. Which is why I'm grateful that I grew up with Invincible and not Spider-Man. 
Yeah, well, Invincible is Spider-Man done if Spider-Man... See, I don't have a problem with Spider-Man not aging. Yeah. Because he's a not real. So he doesn't have to age. He's not an actor. Yeah. I don't mind them doing that on stuff like Buffy, although, as I've said before, I don't think Buffy was ever as good after she left high school. Because mm-hmm. that was what the show was about. But yeah. I don't... I don't Cartoon characters don't edge. Spider-Man doesn't have to edge. You have to make a conscious decision to edge it. Yeah. Whereas Invincible is telling Spider-Man if they wanted to, isn't it? Hasn't he got a kid now? I don't know. I think he's got a child now. Ruin it for me. Oh, it's that, that's not ruined it. Somebody said he's got a kid, is it? I've not told you it's with. There's a little bit of a spoiler. <laughs> so, yeah, Invincible is Spider-Man done if they had originally planned to go through with the concept of aging him and... And changing him and all that stuff. So yeah. We'll squeeze one more in. And this is from Anthony Hood. Wow. Anthony of the Hood. Like Robin of Sherwood. Robin of the Hood. In I, just the love, hood. I just love Robin of Sherwood. Not Robin in the Hood. That's a completely <laughs> different show. <laughs> Gangster Robin Hood. <laughs> Starring that guy who was Rody in the first Iron Man film but oh, yeah. got kicked out because he wanted too much money. And then they could bring Don Cheadle in as well and see if the two of them get on with each other. <laughs> as Robin in the Hood. Robin Abba, Robin Gangs of the Hood. There's the title. Little John's this, the, the, the baby brother, he's, his mum's made him uh, babysit. <laughs> oh, you should pitch this show. You should totally. Anyway, Anthony of the Hood. Hello, Andrew and Michael. Hello, Anthony. Just wanted to drop you a quick-ish mail and say thanks for the hours and hours of free entertainment that Hey Kids has given me over the last few months, usually in the car on the way to and from work. I've been working my way through your back catalogue and can honestly say there hasn't been an episode I haven't enjoyed. Although the less said about Maximum Carnage, the better. Oh, now, come on, Luke loves Car Maximum Carnage. Everybody loves a story to a certain degree. Yeah. Even if it's cat. And sometimes it's better off not to read them because then you love them less. (laughs) I want to know where these people... I mean, Ali said Matt pointed us in his direction, but how did you find us, Anthony? Where did did we... uh, Because it's not like I advertise this filth. True. I just kind of throw it out there and let people find it. I have this wacky idea that quality will find a way to to bubble to the top. It has done so far. Yeah, but then I remember quality. Quantity. Ah, that's what it is. Yeah. Nearly 250 episodes. Yeah, quantity, not quality. I can go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anthony continues, I just finished listening to the King of the Rocket Man episode this morning and it brought back memories of the film version, which I think was sadly underrated and which I haven't seen in far too long. I really need to find a copy of that. The mention of the old King of the Rocket Men black and white serials on BBC TV brought a smile to my face. I used to and still do love those old series, definitely. Definitely need to hunt down the Dave Stevens collected edition of Rocketeer as they sound like a great read. And doing up a quick online search brings up some beautiful artwork. Weirdly, that got me thinking about an old Spider-Man Doc Savage story from the UK Spider-Man Annual from 1977. And wouldn't you know it, the Spidey Punisher story you were discussing a few weeks ago is in there too. You guys plan this stuff to the nth degree, don't you? You keep thinking that. <laughs> if you want to think that, we will not disabuse you of that notion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anthony continues, I also just want to mention my favourite to commute, Bibbo, and your recent Superman vs. the Blonde Ponzi Dude episodes. I think you spoke for quite a lot of Superman fans by what you said and didn't say about the current situation with soups. DC have sadly lost their way and it's been getting more and more depressing over the last, well, 15 years or so. They do need to have a serious rethink and getting back to the top where he belongs. 
Anyway, if I have one complaint about your show, it's that you've made me spend way too much money on comics, books and stuff I didn't own before. And I just found the Rocketeer DVD on Amazon for £2.70. Where's my wallet? I'm King of the Rocket Man. It's £7.50 on DVD. Damn you, sirs. I think I've gone on long enough. All the best, Antoinette. Anyway, we will take a break there, and we will be back in a moment talking about the wonderful, wacky world of Iron Fist. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Emerging from the same background as Luke Cage, the 1970s, but the Kung Fu craze as opposed to black exploitation, Iron Fist is believed by many to be a simple Bruce Lee knockoff. However, according to the text page in Marvel Premiere issue 15, Fist's first appearance, author Roy Thomas states that Iron Fist was created before Bruce Lee rose to prominence as a pop culture icon. Thomas claims to have been inspired instead by an old 1940s character called Amazing Man, created by Bill Everett. The name came from an old movie Thomas had seen that featured the ceremony of the Iron Fist, and it stuck in his head for use down the line. Thomas was concerned that the similarity of name to Iron Man may cause problems, but feeling a superhero version of Chang-Chi could be a big seller for the company, he approached Stan Lee with the idea anyway. Stan, oddly, had no problem with the naming similarities, and so emboldened, Thomas hooked up with artist Gil Kane to do the design work. I have to confess I rarely read any Iron Fist as a kid, and when I did, he was the back half of Power Man and... Therefore, I only picked up the essential volume that reprints every Iron Fist appearance from his first to Power Man and Iron Fist issue 50, because it was mostly John Byrne art. Imagine my surprise, then, when this turned out to be one of the best essentials I ever bought. I fur tore through this, enjoying both story and art thoroughly. You read any Iron Fist? Uh, mm, Not until no. today. <laughs> you never read any? Not even guest appearances yeah, and other stuff? Yeah, I've never guest appearances. I just don't know. You're just not down with your kung fu bad self? Yeah, apparently, yeah. Oh, alright. Fair enough. Iron Fist's first appearance, as mentioned, was in Marvel Premier issue 15, cover dated May 1974. The cover by Gil Kane and Dick Giordano, who were also the art team, has a man in green and yellow kicking his way through men clad in karate gi as he yells, You karate killers wanted a showdown. Now you've got it. Not only is it an awesome origin issue, it is also Kung Fu action in the Mighty Marvel Manor. I like the cover. I like the cover a lot. Although the Karate Killers was the name of one of those Man From Uncle movies in the 60s. Well, they just chopped TV episodes up and made films out of them. Okay. Do you know they refilmed bits of that? Do they? Yvonne Craig from Batgirl right. is in the films. Right. She's not in the TV show. 
Okay. Very weird. That's a little trivia note. <laughs> apropos of absolutely nothing. <laughs> and nothing at all to do with this episode. Uh-huh. So I just thought I'd chuck it in. Do you like that cover? He Doesn't he look like Kingpin from the DDTV show, the guy that he's kicking? He look like Vincent D'Onofrio. Is that his I, name? I, I don't know. You've watched Daredevil? I've not. Oh. Get with the program. <laughs> anyway, cover. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it is a cover. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've ticked a box. Mm. We have talked about a cover yeah. to this comic. It's all right. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's all right. I like it a lot. I think it's really good. Mm, it's better than the uh, Luke Cage one. Which Luke Cage one? The first Luke Cage one. Really? Yeah. Oh, we won't be having you dissing on Joe Ramita, dude. Well, the Iron Fist one doesn't have, like, floaty dice or <laughs> half of The Power Man one was conjuring up images of black exploitation movie posters. The Luke Cage one was just you, trying to fill any dead space. All right, this is a little bit more dramatic. <laughs> I will give you that. It's a lot more well thought out as well. It doesn't... It isn't in a box either. There, yeah, which... Is better. Which does help. Yeah, I agree entirely. The Fury of Iron Fist was the title. I've already mentioned the creative team. Keep up. There'll be a quiz later. Well done. No. <laughs> In the hidden and presumed mythical land of... Un- un- the man called Iron Fist faces his final challenge. To bite deeply into the tree of knowledge or drink fatally from the elixir of death. I love Roy Thomas. <laughs> the first challenge is a horde of men. No contest. The august personage of Jade demands Iron Fist take a moment to reflect, and he casts his mind back, back, ten years. As a nine-year-old boy named Danny Randy and his mother and father, as well as his father's business partner, Harold Meacham, are tackling a mountain trek to locate a long-forgotten and hidden city. The city of Gunlum. However, a landslide takes young Danny and his mother out of the equation. As Danny's father tries to reach them, Harold Meacham kicks Wendell Rand off the ledge to his death. He then professes his love for Heather Rand. Must have been a more appropriate time. Heather tells Harold she'd rather die than be his, and so he leaves them there to do just that. However, Heather and Danny's desire for revenge gives them strength, and they manage, against all odds, to crawl off the ledge to the relative safety of the track. Flashback over, Iron Fist now tackles the second of his challenges. Shu Hu is big and fast and gives Iron Fist a run for his money, and Fist takes a severe beating. This smacking around the head causes another flashback. Danny and Heather struggle across the mountains, pain and frostbite constant companions, but that is the least of their problems, as a pack of wolves pick up their scent. After days of wandering, the wolves, sensing their prey is at their lowest ebb, attack just as Danny and Heather find a bridge in the middle of nowhere. Heather sends Danny off her to run and to buy her son time, she throws herself, quite literally, to the wolves. Danny turns, but is yanked away by hands that make short work of the wolves with their crossbows. Sadly, it is too late for Heather Rand. Emboldened by the memory of his mother's sacrifice, Danny Rand focuses pain and channels it. He becomes a man berserk, channeling his chi into one place in his body, infusing his left hand with raw, unbridled power, like unto a thing of iron. He makes short work of Shi Hu and stands before the council. He has won the right to choose between eternal life or death. Which doesn't seem to me to be much of a choice, does it? Cake or death? <laughs> uh, I'll have chicken. Uh, cake, please. We're all out of chicken, I'm afraid. <laughs> eternal life or death? Well, let me ponder on this yeah. for a, a short amount of time because it does seem to me to be a very, very difficult. Oh, eternal life. 
There'll be a lot more of death because not many people want that. Well, you're dead for much longer. Yeah, exactly. So, so arguably, it's, it's eternal better deal. death as well. <laughs> <laughs> eternal death or eternal life. Oh, well, gee. If I'm dead, I don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> if you go into politics, you don't. Oh! Or being a comedian. Or, being or a musician. Oh, yeah. Apparently, you don't have to pay taxes if you do those careers either. Yeah. Excellent. Anyway, yeah, uh, as with Tom DeFalco's Spider-Girl in the 1990s, Thomas adopts a second-person narrative for this story, which I have to confess is not one of my favourite storytelling devices. You are Iron Fist. Do you like that? Let me bug you. I don't know. When they do it in horror stories, I quite like it in horror stories. Why? Well, you know, like the Tales of the Zombie and all that, or or horror tales when they do it there. Yeah. That's fine, but I don't know. It's a bit much to keep it up for a 500-page essential. Although, to be fair, I mean, it carries on in, in Marvel Premiere. Um, there are writers... I mean, it's a many-hands production in terms of writing. It's, you know, Len Wynn took a stab at Tony Isabella and Doug Mensch and Chris Claremont, and they all follow that technique of you are Iron Fist. You stand too tensely. You are a war. Yeah. And Claremont carries that on into the main series as well. But he, he abandons it completely by the time he gets a Power Man and Iron Fist. Right. Which is probably wise. Yeah. Because it, it does get a little bit old after a while. Uh, the artwork, I love Gil Kane. I've always loved Gil Kane's weird angles. And he's up the nostril shots. Yeah. I always like them. I think they're great fun. It's a good job he cleans his nostril and shaves <laughs> his nostril hair, isn't it? Otherwise they could be uh, they could be quite... Can you imagine if he had a cold? Yeah, would he draw those bogeys? Oh, oh, I hope that he wouldn't. I Attention like to, to detail. I like to think... Well, he keeps them in shed. Right, so yeah. You can't tell if there's bogeys. I would have thought. Uh, I never would have thought to pour him with the clean, smooth inks of Dick Giordano, but it actually... It's a really good combo, isn't it? Mm. There are still enough cane angles, the shots of Danny and Heather watching as Wendell falls to his death, Iron Fist being sent sprawling across the room, etc. These are all standard Kane poses but it's clearly Kane as opposed to when John Romita inked Kane in last month's last one last month we didn't do it monthly did we last week's episode uh, but Giordano softens a lot of Kane's roughness it's a nice it's a very pleasing combo very odd that those two would be pleasing but uh, the art it's really good do you like the art? I do it's great it I is. the art's really good Especially the flashback bits. Another other nostril shot. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Gil. It's kind of similar to a, a bit of Sylvester. It a is much, a bit. A much cleaner Sylvester. With better grasp of anatomy as well. That too. Although Sylvester wasn't the worst of the image ilk, was he? Mm, no. I don't think he was. I'm trying to conjure up in me. I remember he did X-Men for a bit, but I never read X-Men very much. Yeah. And then he went to Image, didn't he? Yeah. And now he's... Does he do anything now? He does. Does he? I don't know. I don't think... I don't Witchblade. Is that him? Yeah. I can't remember the last time I saw Mark Silvestri on a comic book. Oh, didn't he do a couple of Jason Aaron's Hulks? Yes, he did. And they weren't very good? No, they weren't. Alright, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, Harold Meacham is an asshole! Which actually comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, he, he just... Do you think this was planned? Him killing of Danny Rand's dad? Uh, or do you think he just spied an opportunity to bump Wendell off? I, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Mr. Wendell. It's just a stereotype, though. 
You, what, the business partner who kills him? Exactly. Oh, yeah. this, as with the Power Man, Iron Power Man, as with the Luke Cage story, this is riddled with cliches. Oh, yeah. But the fact that it works as well as it does shows there is nothing wrong with those cliches when they're done properly. Yes. But, yeah, the businessman who turns on his partner and kills him. Yeah, you're right. It's a bit of, and carry my dead bud been there, done that, innit? Yeah, I, I, did, I did like the, um, I love you, woman, now Eva, come with me, or die. Yeah, I, I can't help but think that telling somebody that you love them just after you've murdered the husband is not the best timing. It shows. Unless she's a femme fatale and it's all her idea. Yeah, it, it shows that you are willing to, to go to any lengths to please your woman. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a sexist pig as well. Like. Come here, woman. <laughs> he's a bit Conanny, isn't he? A little bit. A little bit Conanny. Yeah, all right. I, I like as well that he's not raised uh, to um, avenge the death of his father. He's, he's, he's a, well, yeah, he is. He's out to avenge the death of his father. He's not out to protect other children from no, their parents being killed from yeah, it's, it's, business partners. He's yeah. not raised to be a good guy. He's raised to seek out vengeance. Good. Yeah, wrong with that. Can't all be Batman, dude. Even yeah. though, even though, isn't he? Isn't he filthy rich? Isn't he? Yeah. As the as the only survivor of uh, Rand Meacham or Wendell Rand or whatever, he's clearly insane. But the smart thing to do here, surely Heather would have been smarter to pretend that she was uh, she was down with Meacham and go, oh well, I didn't know. Pull me up and we'll talk about it. Wouldn't that have been the smarter play? Or maybe even, you know, cozy up to him, get back to civilization, and then turn him in. I, I guess. <laughs> that would seem to me to be cleverer than going, I'll never join you! Alright, we'll stay down there on that ledge then, bye! The power of angry vengeance. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a story if he does that. But, you know, in fact, I can't help but think that Harold didn't think this through at all, which is why I think it may have been a spur-of-the-moment thing. Mm. Because he, he kills Wendell, and then clearly says, no one will know that I killed you. But if Heather turns around to him and says, oh, I love you too, Mr. Meacham, they'll kind of know yeah. that he killed Wendell. If, if they did join up with him and escape, they could always go back to it as an Arrow-esque flashback. Oh, uh, that would make my day. <laughs> we all know you're, the, you're your favourite part. They are my favourite parts of Arrow, yeah, any time they go into a flashback. In fact, flashbacks bore me now. <laughs> Just full start. Cliché. They worked in this, though. Yeah. So, again, it's it's how they're, how they're handled. Um, I'd forgotten Dying Fist was so young. Yeah. I didn't know he was only 19. Completely forgotten that. I wonder how old he's going to be in the TV show because they've not cast Iron Fist yet, have they? Have they not? No, because they've not even started working on it. Right. So they've cast Power Man, Luke Cage, Mm. because he's in alias Jessica Jones. Yeah. So they've had to cast him, but they've not cast Iron Fist yet. Right, okay. So he's the the lone member of the Defenders that has not yet been announced. I mean, they may have some casting decisions, but they've not... uh, Yeah. They've not, they've not announced who they are. I love the shot of, of nine-year-old Danny when he decides he's going to survive. And the panel tradition, the panel transitions are really good as well. The angle on his face, and then it picks up in the nail, and the yeah. angle on Iron Fist's face is exactly the same from panel to panel. And the same with the earlier flashbacks, when they move back into the present. They do so in such a, a really good, fluid, and, and well-drawn way. Like the... the yeah. Where the little kids, yes, mother, I'm ready to try, and then you you cut straight to Dana, and the present day, present day be 1974, but you know what I mean. And Iron Fist getting the crap kicked out of him at the end isn't 
him getting beaten. It's Rocky Three. Yeah. You know, he, he ain't getting, getting mad. He's, He's getting, getting mad. Beat. No, yes. <laughs> you were right. Yeah. I got confused. <laughs> Not getting beat. He's getting mad. So essentially, it's the same thing. I like that. Heather making her grand sacrifice. She throws herself to the wolves. If only she'd waited one more minute. Yeah, it was a bit insane. <laughs> she would have been okay. Yeah. Such a shame. Unless they were just going to let them both die. And then they were like, oh, bugger, we can't just let a kid die. <laughs> God, we'll have to do something about it now. That's possible, I suppose. Yeah, it is. I mean, what would they have done with her in this mythical land of Cone Lone? <laughs> Sounds like I've got a bad cough, doesn't it? it Cone Lone! <laughs> I liked her sacrifice. I thought it was quite well done because you don't actually see it. You just see her bloodied hand. Yeah, but then you get the scene where he gets rescued anyway and suddenly there's just this bitter... Yeah, this bitter <laughs> idea that mum died for nothing. Yeah. Because if she just waited one more minute, the Cunlunians... <laughs> Is that what they're called, do you think? I don't... Cunlunians? It, it, a lot of the words in this sound BS. <laughs> a lot of this just sounds ridiculous in such an exaggerated way that it, it works. Yeah. But it doesn't at the same time. Oh, no, uh, I thought it totally worked. And then he hit with his monkey fist and did an elephant kick and then the hammer strike, <laughs> but then the sword slash. And just, just stop using... I did, I did, just, just stop it. <laughs> It'll be interesting if this makes it to the TV show. And I do think that the end where Iron Fist emerges triumphant and he kicks Shumu, or whatever his name was, the new Shmoo's face. Shumu. Yeah. Uh. yeah, him. And he turns out that he's a robot. <laughs> and you're like, was that a comics code thing? Yeah. Despite the fact that this issue has had a man thrown to his death from a cliff. Yeah. And a woman eaten alive by wolves. Yep. But that was too much for them. <laughs> so him punching somebody in the face with the iron fist, that was that was a step too far for the comics code. And let's make him a robot. <laughs> well, why did you not make Wendell Rand a robot when he fell off the cliff? <laughs> it's just that that struck me as that was a bit in the last page, as with the Luke Cage issue last week, the last page just kind of took it over into comiciness. Yeah. In a way that kind of spoiled the seriousness of the story. Hmm. I would have liked that to have been a real guy. No, I didn't want him to punch a real guy's head off. Yeah. But I would have liked him to have beaten a real guy rather yeah. than a robot. And inside the robot. <laughs> no. Where did they get the robot from anyway? I don't know what. Did they build them? And here's one of the doubles we stole from the Shield Warehouse. Because <laughs> if the Cunlunians yeah. can build robots that are this good, <laughs> why are they not just marketing them and making a ton of money? Cunlun Robotics. <laughs> For all your adversarial needs. <laughs> yeah, if they can build robots that are this good. Yeah. Up in the middle of the Himalayas <laughs> in a hidden city where they all look like, um, what's his name from Kung Fu Grasshopper? Yeah. Living off the land and being one with the chi. <laughs> where, where do they get all the equipment from to build robots? It's do they get shipped in? Magic. <laughs> if you curve a rock, like, thin <laughs> enough. Oh, alright, fair enough. I'll go with that. I'm interested to see how much this makes it to the TV show. Yeah. Because it's very cinematic origin. Mm. Up until the robot, obviously. What took me out of it was the last panel. Why? Was, oh, we have more dramatic story, but we can't fit into this. <laughs> it does end very abruptly, doesn't it? Yeah. He kicks Chumu's face off. Chumu, the new Shumu. Chumu and Park. <laughs> what, what can you order from Chinese? I, I don't know. Mushu. Mushu sauce, that kind of thing. Shumu. Yeah, he kicks his head off, and then he turns to the August, August personage of Jade... And they say, uh, yeah, uh, more to come next time. Bye! Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> it? It's, it's very abrupt. It was a great beginning to the strip. There are similarities, as mentioned, to Bill Everett's Amazing Man. But there's a bit of a similarity to Doctor Strange's origin, you know, where he's wandering through yeah. the Himalayan mountains and he meets up with the, the Eternal Shangri-La. One. Yeah, the Ancient One, whatever his name was. And there's even a bit of Ra's al Ghul to it. Or Ra's al Ghul, depending on your pronunciation yeah. preference. But it manages to work on its own as a piece, despite being, as Michael pointed out, full of cliches. Mm. And so many r- ridiculous words. So many ridiculous combinations of words. Roy Thomas who is so verbose, verbose sorry, and long-winded on the Avengers. I, I think it worked. It's brilliant here. Yeah, you're right. I will kick you with a roundhouse elephant <laughs> kick to the new lands, and then I will oof up with my boobledads. <laughs> I, I love the name of the river. What's it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you just see a typewriter? Yeah. That name will do. It sounds like the, what they're saying is the noises you make when you get a bone stuck in your throat. <laughs> <laughs> or the dancing midget from Twin Peaks. <laughs> the afterlife beyond the bridge of pain. Do you stand on a Lego which- block? <laughs> Beneath which runs the rivers of crimson. <laughs> yeah, it's like you typed out Nick's pickling, <laughs> but put an apostrophe in every other every other letter. That would totally work. <laughs> Mister Mix's tiny prick made to come back. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought this was brilliant. I really did. I mean, I think I would have preferred Heather Rand survive, if only so we didn't have another Marvel hero who was an orphan. But. I thought the script was great. I mean, we've took the mick out of it a bit, but it was a great read. Yeah. And Gil Kane and Dick Giordano's artwork, a combination that should not work, yet does brilliantly. And a test of this stuff is always, did this make you want to read on? And uh, it did. I was I ploughed through a couple more of these. And I was quite surprised that the next couple of issues all have different writers and artists, because there is a certain level of quality to it until you get to the main series where it's all pretty much John Byrne. And even though, though, John Byrne starts out not looking like John Byrne, mm. and slowly, this this is where he becomes who John Byrne is. Right. Not in X-Men. I think it's here. Because by the time he gets to X-Men, he's recognisably Byrne, isn't he? Yeah. Whereas this is where he's, he's honing his craft. Uh, Iron Fist would go on to headline Marvel premiere until issue 25 whereupon he would graduate to his own series, as well as being given a regular creative team. His run in Premiere being a many-hands kind of deal, to be fair. So many writers and artists worked on Iron Fist during those ten issues, and it still maintained its quality and consistency, is a testament to the professionalism of the people involved. Nevertheless, Iron Fist number one, cover dated November 1975, kicked off with Chris Claremont and John Byrne at the helm, just before they became the hottest team in comics, thanks to their collaboration on The Uncanny X-Men. What did you think of Marvel Premiere number 15? Uh, I liked it, actually. It was, it was a hoot. It was a hoot. It was a hoot. I, I like that review. It was a hoot and a half. I like that. That's quite fun. 
Anyway, by the time Iron Fist issue 12, cover dated April 1977, came out, this team had gelled and Iron Fist had become a wonderful comic. Each issue was intriguing and developed the characters, while still telling interesting and action-packed comics. The cover by Dave Cockrum and Frank Gaiacoya is serviceable, but not particularly dynamic. Jarvis lies on the floor, dead or unconscious, who can say, as Iron Fist smacks the crap out of Captain America's shield. The shield and the power, runs the nonsensical cover copy. All-out action as Iron Fist faces the super might of Captain America. The super might of Captain America. Not just the might. Not just the might. The super might of Captain America. Isn't that something that lives on crypto? It's, I was just... (laughs) That just begged the question, what does Superman do when crypto gets fleas? Super fleas. (laughs) Super mites. (laughs) Yeah. Very good. <laughs> oh, you do make me chill. Uh, assault on Avengers Mansion. Captain America is catching up on recent events, which is really lucky for the reader. It's been six hours since the wrecking crew and Iron Fist were seen attacking an Eastside Medical Center, and since then, no one has seen Hyde nor her of them. Why would Cap be thinking of this? Well, see, Iron Fist has been tasked with breaking into Avengers Mansion and killing any Avengers in there by the Wrecking Crew who are holding his erstwhile girlfriend Misty Knight and will kill her if he does not. Which sounds exactly the same as the plot to Power Man issue 48 that we covered last week. Yeah. Doesn't it? Fist does the breaking and entering thing just fine, but is forced to save Jarvis, who clumsily falls down the stairs. The sound alerts Cap on monitor duty today, and in true Marvel fashion, we get a misunderstanding which leads to a fight. Iron Fist is good, Cap is better. Fist decides that this dance could go on all day, so he takes a reckless gamble. He refuses to move after Cap's shield destroys the supporting beam and stands preparing to be crushed by a falling generator. Cap cannot let this happen and saves Fist, thus proving Fist just wishes to talk. He tells Cap what's going on and a plan is hatched. Minutes later, Fist summons the Wrecking Crew, Piledriver, the Wrecker, the Bulldozer, and Thunderball, who sees Jarvis tied up and helpless and a dead Captain America on the floor. Also, they think they wouldn't be stupid enough to kill Captain America not in his own title, would they? That would just be silly. Cap is playing possum, luring the Wrecking Crew into the Danger Room, what? Where they can use the defences to trap the crew who outclass Cap and Fist in the raw power department. With some of the old one-two, Cap and Fist mop up the mess, deliver the crew to the cops, save Misty and shake hands. A job well done. They then run towards the camera as music <laughs> plays in the background. Absolutely, they don't do that, although that would be quite quite funny. Cap deals with the Rosas, Mist and Fisty. <laughs> Mist and Fisty? Fist and Misty go for Chinese. What do you think of this one? Uh, it was fun. I love this one. I actually think that this is a really, really good... Co- I mean, despite being part two of a two-part story... Yeah. And there are subplots, you know, going further than that, because it's a Chris Claremont comic, this is an excellent issue. It doesn't really paint Captain America in a good light, though. It does not paint Captain America in in the best of lights because he has a knee-jerk reaction to something he reads on the internet (laughs) and jumps to the wrong conclusion about what he reads on the internet without actually doing his research that Iron Fist is in fact not guilty of the two murders he just read and then without checking his facts what he does is he posts a couple of nasty tweets on Fist's Twitter feed. (laughs) So you're right, Captain America is not portrayed in the best of lights, in, certainly in terms of social media. 
Fair enough. <laughs> Captain Stephen Sarkeesian. <laughs> uh, the splash page is brilliant. I really like the splash page a great deal. It brings the reader up to uh, speed with current events, as well as giving us a Daredevil cameo. Daredevil's on the thing and they're punching somebody yeah. out. Why Daredevil's on, on thing, you? I don't know. Captain America just likes to watch every vigilante Well, I was just going to say, Cap's way ahead of the social media curve, isn't he? Yeah. He's able to do multiple things at once. He's watching four different TV channels, and he's surfing the internet. Yeah. So he may be a man out of time, but he's no dummy. <laughs> and that would have been better if Daredevil was punching Bullseye okay. on TV. Can you remember that issue where they were in the TV studios? Oh, yeah. So that would have been really cool. I don't know if that was, you know... Around the time. Around this time, but I think that would have been brilliant if that if that were the case. Brian Bendis would have done that anyway and not could. Yeah. Whether it was around the time or not. Uh, Iron Fist is brought into Avengers Mansion. As I just mentioned in the synopsis, this is exactly the same plot... As Power Man 48. Yeah. Did you notice that when you were reading it? Uh, I didn't. The, the hero is being blackmailed by the bad guys who have kidnapped his woman and are threatened to kill them to go and kill somebody. Mm. It's the same plot. Exactly the same plot. Jarvis falls down the stairs so we get a magnificent burn page of Iron Fist rolling underneath him and then holding him as he falls down the stairs so Jarvis doesn't hurt himself. Yeah. I thought that was great. Absolutely brilliant panel. Do you know that? They're very reminiscent of your pal Frank Quitley. All right. In that uh, issue of Multiversity that everyone raves about. You know what I think? No, it's more ditko Well, it is more ditko but... You mean the panel layouts of the stairs? Yeah. Yeah, in that Pax Americana thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, no, nothing original. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cat does look... Absolutely fantastic on the full page shot where he confronts Iron Fist. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. He's all in shade, so you don't really see him. You just see his outline and the star and the A. And I, the, the I always shield. like it when they do that, like with Batman and Superman as well, mm. where they're all covered in shadow, except for the Except logo. for the logos. <laughs> I love stuff like that. I like it when they do it with Spider-Man, but all you can see is the red webbing. Yeah. Which is weird, because the webbing's black. Yeah. <laughs> But it works. It does. It, it works like as a... Cover. Yeah, it works as a visual. So, uh, Cap does just attack without provocation. Mm. But let's not forget that as far as Cap is concerned, you know, from his misreading of the internet, yeah. Fist is wanted for murder, he's trespassing, and the first thing he sees is Fist standing over the prone form of Jarvis. Yeah, well, Iron Fist tries to uh, explain himself... So Captain America, fighter of the people, defender of America, a kid from Brooklyn, just ignores this guy's pleas. Yeah. Just because of what the internet told yeah, him. Yeah, he does, he does. There's been a misunderstanding. I can explain, so Cap just throws his shield at him. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, funny. <laughs> Makes no sense. Yeah. But very, very funny. And then we get a really, really good, um, good fight scene between the two of them. Very well choreographed. Lasting a couple of pages where we very quickly realise that Iron Fist, as good as he is, is no match for, for Captain America. Mm. So he, he busts out the Iron Fist and uh, Cap puts his shield up, but it just shoves him right back through the wall. Yeah. I like that. I thought, I thought this was a really, really good fight scene. Most of this issue is this six-page fight scene, given this was back in the day where I think they were only doing 17-page stories. Mm. But it's, it's great. It's, it's really good. Writers always portray Cap as being somehow a lot older than he is. Iron Fist is 19 here. So if Cap went in the army at 18, right. and then he fought in the war for four years, and then went in the ice... Presuming we follow the sliding Marvel timescale, at this point, Cap's been around for five years or so. 
he's still only in his late 20s. So he's not that much older than Iron Fist. No. But he does come from that generation that just feels older than we do. Yeah. Doesn't he? So, alright, I, I can go with that. I don't like them portraying him as being like 45. Because... Mm. As an old man. Yeah, he's probably not turned 30. Yeah. In many ways. But, yeah, it, it works in this. And then the Wrecking Crew show up, who I love. I've always loved the Wrecking Crew. There is something really great about this bunch of complete and utter meatheads having the power of an Asgardian god. And it is the stupidity that normally brings about the downfall. Because I love them. I really do love the Wrecking Crew. See them get eaten in uh, Marvel Zombies. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, (laughs) I did like the bit where Captain America destroys the machinery over Iron Fist's head and he just stands there. Oh, yeah. And Captain America's like, no, you'll die if you don't move. And I'm just sat there going, wow, this shines shines a whole new light on superheroic fights. (laughs) They endanger the people they're fighting. They can kill the people they're fighting, but expect them not to die. Well, I'm going, I mean, I'm going to, to throw all this on you that I know will kill you, and you better be good enough to run out the way. Well, I got the distinct impression he thinks Iron Fist is probably good enough to get out of the way. You can't just assume that. No, you can't assume that. Captain America could have legitimately killed Iron Fist. Yeah, he could have. And um, he intended to. His dialogue says that. I don't think he intended to kill him. No, he didn't intend to kill, to kill him. him, but he says if he doesn't move out of the way from what I just caused, then he'll die. Yeah. He intended to put him in a mortal situation and assumed that he was good enough to get out of it. Yeah, which is exactly <laughs> what Iron Fist does with Luke Cage in the story we're going to cover next. Right, oh no, right. and again, in Power Man 48 that we covered last week. Yeah. Because it's two parts I'm confabulating it in my head. Mm. So Clobot's basically just repeating himself already. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, alright, fair enough, I'll give you that. <laughs> Cap does deliberately endanger him for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> again, you've got the thing where Burn has people drawn on the panel borders. Yeah. Which Chris Claremont was like, I don't like. Not Chris Claremont, James Shooter, wasn't it? I don't like you doing that. And right. Claremont's like, why not? And Burn's like, huh? It's because I don't like it. Alright, fair enough, whatever. Um, but when does Avengers match have a danger room? I thought that, but I thought it were the Avengers and the X-Men, not buddies then. I don't recall the Avengers mansion ever having a danger room before this. Um, I could be wrong, so anyone who read the Avengers more regularly than I did in the 1970s, if you want to drop me a message telling me, no, you're wrong, you're an idiot, how come you missed that panel in <laughs> Avengers 163? Uh, then please feel free to drop me a, a line. But I don't recall the Avengers having their own danger room. Clermont getting these titles mixed I up? suspect that is probably more likely to be the truth. Yeah. That Chris Clermont's mixing up Avengers Mansion with the uh, X-Mansion or whatever Professor Xavier calls his house. He probably calls it Lex Luthor's place. <laughs> and then he calls it, yeah, and then I sold it to Oliver Queen. So it's okay. probably something along those lines. But so yeah, but it's not even like it's a practice danger room or something, which I have I, I did some Google foo. Yeah. And somebody was saying, Yeah, well, you know, it was for Charles Xavier, but the Avengers were just testing it out. And you're like, Well, but it's a Thor sequence. They stole the patent. Yeah. <laughs> and then said, Prove it, mute it. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Stark brought in his phalanx of lawyers. And Professor Xavier was like, You I invented that. Uh, and Tony Stark was like, it was work for hire, dude. And the jury was not biased against uh, <laughs> the jury was scumbags. The jury was not paid off yeah. by Tony Stark. 
<laughs> oh, your idea as well. You just go back. Yeah, alright, fair enough. I'd, uh, I can, uh, yeah. I liked how the DJ room attacked the uh, wrecking crew, but not Cap and uh, Iron Fist. Well, that's okay, because I can buy that. I can accept that Captain America knows where all the traps are going to be. Yeah. And is avoiding them. I'm not going to explanation for Iron Fist. That's <laughs> just dumb luck. If I hide behind this box and make no noise. Yeah, maybe he's got an Iron Fist sense. You know, like Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like woman's intuition. Like Sue Richards had in the early Fantastic Four. My woman's intuition is telling me there is trouble around that corner. Stan, that's not how it works! <laughs> the dragon on his chest glows its eyes <laughs> when there's danger nearby. When there's danger nearby. Yeah, right, fair enough. So you walk through New York at night, you've got a torch as well. <laughs> if you're dumb enough to go through Central Park after yeah. that. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it works... Because the Wrecking Crew are far more powerful than Captain America and Iron Fist. Yeah. So using the room against the Wrecking Crew on Thor setting kind of works, because the room is designed to beat Thor, and these are Asgardian-powered. Yeah. So, alright, I'll I'll give it a pass. It's good strategic thinking. It's quite clever. Uh, I mean, there's more than a hint of comedy to how the Wrecking Crew are taken out. But, for the most part, it works, if you ignore the fact that Avengers Mansion has never had a danger room. (laughs) Which is a pretty big thing to have to ignore <laughs> yeah. for this comic. This is the whole conclusion <laughs> taking place yeah. of it. The whole conclusion depends upon that. <laughs> and I'm saying, eh, let's ignore it. Well, it, doesn't, it doesn't work as well if they decide to go to the X-Mansion <laughs> and in between panels they convince Xavier to take all the, the children and the orphans and the X-Men out. And well, see, would this have worked just as well if you substitute Captain America for Wolverine or Colossus? And have yeah. him be breaking into X-Mansion rather than Avengers Mansion. It would work better. Yeah, because there's a danger room in a big yeah. X-Mansion. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah that, that probably could have worked. I mean, I don't know if the X-Men were, were out at that point, whether Charles Xavier was known to be. Although 1970 had just been the new X-Men, won't it? Mm. So it's, yeah, it's just possible... It will have been Wolverine or Nightcrawler or Colossus when this came out. If this came out in 77, was New X-Men 74? So it should have just been the New X-Men-ish, I suppose. 74, 75? Hmm. So it would have worked with Colossus, I suppose. Because you could have played more or less the exact same beats Hmm? with Colossus, couldn't you? Although would Colossus have been powerful enough to take on the Wrecking Crew on his own? Or maybe not four of them. Yeah. So, yeah, all right. With, yeah. with the benefit of the danger room. Yeah, with the benefit of the So that would have worked as well. I mean, yeah, there, there are problems, the danger room and the wrecking crew being sitting out. But this I, this was a joy to read, actually. I mean, we, again, we took the piss a little bit because, you know, it's a 70s comic book. But it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. It's fast-paced. The art is exquisite. There's some great scenes. It takes the Marvel misunderstanding and then team up to take out the bad guy's subgenre and handles it how it should be handled. It's masterful stuff. Iron Fist is one of Clermont Burns' most underrated projects and is often overshadowed by the X-Men. But I think it's better than their X-Run because it's not been given that elevated status that you come to X-Men after the fact you can't help but be a little disappointed. Mm. By it. even though Days of Future Past, I think is still two of the best issues ever published by Marvel, and I'm not a huge X-Men fan. Yeah, but I think this Iron Fist run is just as good as the work on Uncanny X-Men. It's fun. It is, There's isn't it? Nothing more to them. No. I mean, I mean, I've not read all of them, but out of both of them we've read, it's not been a 
political commentary. There's not been any serious sub uh, subtext. It's just been fun. No, it's not been an angst fest either. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it's just been a good laugh, hasn't it? Which essentially is sometimes all you want from your comics. Yeah. Which is, you know, very good. And the next issue is Boomerang. I love Boomerang. Alright. Boomerang is one of my favourite villains, which is why it pisses me off no end when people like Mark Miller go, he's a B-list, ain't he? Oh no, he's what? He's a B-lister. He's no good. Yeah, he's no good in the hands of a crap writer. <laughs> Not that I'm saying you're a crap writer, but you know, if the shoe fits. Isn't there already a Captain Boomerang? Captain Boomerang's DC. Oh, right. So the Boomerang is mine. Right, okay. So Captain Boomerang's Australian. So right. don't get them mixed up, dude. Okay. Our Australian brethren will not appreciate you saying that the Boomerang is Captain Boomerang. Boomerang is an ultimate Spider-Man. Yes, he is. Yeah. And Bendis was crap. But he's <laughs> much better in Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, where he is a killer. Okay. Oh, but no, he's a C-list villain, yeah, only when boring writers write him. I just remember beating him up in Ultimate Spider-Man, the, the game. <laughs> yeah, he is. Has he been in the comics? Probably. Yeah, I don't remember Ultimates very much. We read it for 100 issues, didn't we, Ultimate Spider? I really liked Ultimate Spider. Did you? Yeah. I thought it was Bendis. <laughs> but I thought it was Bagley. <laughs> well, Bagley was good. Yeah. Bagley was alright, yeah. Anyway, yeah, uh, Iron Fist sadly did not really take off in his own comic. It folded with issue 15, as was the norm. At this time, the loose ends were wrapped up in another title, in this case, Marvel Team-Up. Then the decision was made to merge Power Man with Iron Fist into one book, with the hope that both readerships were sufficiently different that together they would see an increase in sales. The story that linked the two titles was started in Power Man issue 48, which we covered last week. The conclusion to the story saw print in Power Man issue 49, cover dated February 1978. Ron Wilson and Frank Gaia provide the cover in which Luke Cage fights Bushmaster, which if it is isn't a 70s porn flick should be <laughs> it's also a name I just could not take seriously <laughs> at all I'm sorry I do apologise lovely listeners if you're one of those people of a sensitive disposition you are going to get a lot of bush jokes he's a he's, he's a horticulturalist is that what it is yeah. he's a fan of Kate Bush <laughs> <laughs> that too yeah I don't yeah. know where your dirty mind went, oh, but sorry. I thought he was an expert gardener. <laughs> he likes a bit of landscape gardening, doesn't he, Bushmaster? He likes pruning, pruning down below, doesn't he? That is a legit thing. Li- he, likes, he likes keeping it tidy. <laughs> he shaved a bee into it. <laughs> uh, the cover uh, says, um, Bushmaster... Sp- <laughs> the Bushmaster speaks... Iron Fist is finished and you're next, Cage. Because I got the power now. You dig? I don't care if you're stronger than me, Bushmaster, retorts Cage. You're going to pee for his life. Sucker. <laughs> Cage returns to the prison where it all began. It's not a bad cover. But if I was Luke Cage or Danny Rand, I'm pretty confident I'd be mocking the Bushmaster's name yeah, yeah. at every available <laughs> opportunity. You know, it only works, even remotely, <laughs> if he's Australian. If he's Australian, that name works. Damn, the Bushmaster. I'm the Bushmaster. <laughs> I apologise, Australian listeners. But it kind of works if he's Australian. But he isn't, is he? He's, he's, not. he's clearly from Harlem. <laughs> and he's got a bad Michael Jackson hoodie. He's, he's, a, got a, a he's, got a, he's got a He's got a bad mullet, and it's, he, he's so cool. He can wear his shades inside. Yes, well, that's he's, he's the Bono of, uh, of um, Iron Fist's bad guys, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? 
<laughs> can wear his sunglasses inside. That's how cool and or pretentious he is. He's forcing his new album on the uh, <laughs> iPhone. He's forcing his new disco album. Bushmaster plays the hits. <laughs> Featuring uh, Giovanni Giorgio. <laughs> Beavers are a boy's best friend. <laughs> what other songs can I sing? Trimming on a sunny day. Seagate is a lonely place to die is also by Clermont and Burn with inks by Dan Green. After the events of last issue or last week's episode, Cage comes clean with Misty Knight, Colleen Wing and Danny Rand, telling them the whole story. Furry Bushmaster kidnapped Noah Burstein and Claire Temple, friends of Cage, and blackmailed him into kidnapping Misty Knight. In return, not only would the Hurry Bushmaster free Noah and Claw, he would release a videotape confirming Cage's innocence in the drug peddling scam that led to his incarceration. Misty had already run Cage's prints and was preparing to turn him in, but his coming clean lends credence to his tale and they offer to help him instead. Misty knows where Shaved Bushmaster is, after all, she used to work with him, and they head to Seagate Prison, former home for Luke Cage. Misty and Fist take the stealth route, attempting to rescue Noah and Claw, although they only find Claw. Cage, meantime, provides distraction, busting heads and walls. Misty and Claw meet up with Cage, telling him Noah is in solitary, where Brazilian Bushmaster has been working in day and night. <laughs> I bet he has. Fist is on his way though, so Cage tells Misty to get Claire to safety and he'll go after Fist. Fist Bushmaster? <laughs> is this the most juvenile episode we have ever done? Uh, Fist has by this time arrived in solitary to find it does not live up to its name. He makes short work of Shade and Comanche, but is took by surprise not only by the elaborate setup, but by a mighty blow for the new and improved Bushmaster. Cage arrives as Fist flies through the air and turns to tackle some bush as a recovering Fist rescues Noah. Noah has been forced to turn the Bushman into a version of Cage, and Cage means to shut him down, but good. Cage is outclassed, though, and the fight is by no means a simple affair with girders clashing and chemicals spilling all over the floor. Chemical spillage leads to contact with electricity, which in turn leads to a big explosion, which of course Cage survives, but there is no sign of the mighty bush. What there is, however, is Misty Knight holding the man with the tape who can prove Cage's innocence, and along with Claire and Noah, our heroes leave the scene. We'll try not to make any more Bush jokes. <laughs> I'm not promising anything. No, no, no. But, you know. uh, one of the nice things about Clermont is not only does he do away with a lot of Cage's more predictable speech patterns, he writes him as a man yeah. rather than a black man, he also does a great job with Misty Knight, who's absolutely brilliant in this story. Mm. I loved Misty in this. She's the one that works out who Luke Cage is. Yeah. She's the one that's going to turn him in but then decides that his story's got credence so she's not going to bother. Well, when, ex-police. Yeah, she's the one who gets them into Seagate. Yeah. And there's the really brilliant bit um, in the middle where Claire grasses her up to Luke. I was trying to tell your gun-toting idiot partner this when she knocked me out and Misty's face is... Mm. She's brilliant in this session. Absolutely, strong, strong female. No, forget that. Strong character. Yeah, 
That's what it's about. I hope Misty Knight's going to be in the Luke Cage series. Probably. I really If do. not, the Iron Fist. Well, yeah, well, Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. You've got two other brilliant characters that you could have in there. Yeah. So I'm hoping both of those are going to show up at some point in, in the show. Uh, Claire Temple just showed up in Daredevil in the TV right. series. She's Night Nurse. Rosario okay. Dawson plays her. Okay. So it was nice to see her in this and be reminded that she was a, a Luke Cage character. I wonder if she's... Do you think she's going to weave through all the Netflix series? As a as a uh, agent Coulson. No, as a, the night nurse is the person who kind of looks after superheroes when they're wounded, doesn't she? Oh, okay. So that's what that's the function she performs in Daredevil. Right. I wonder if she's going to be the same in Luke Cage or, or whatever. So she's a, essentially what vets are to criminals. Yeah, basically. You know, because they don't have medical insurance. Sure, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> uh, this all ties in exceptionally well with Luke Cage number one. Yeah. Which Claremont didn't write. And I love Misty and Fist as the stealthy ones when they break into Seagate, and Cage is just the loud one. Mm. And they basically use that to their advantage, so all eyes are on Cage while they're off doing the stealth stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant piece of writing. I loved it. I really loved this issue. What did you think? I've not really got a lot of page-by-page basis. It is fun. Yeah. It is a bit dramatic. He doesn't have a mullet in the actual issue, Bushmaster, does he? He, he doesn't. He has a bad, um, bad Club tash. of Lang tash. Not Club of Lang. Yeah. Apollo Creed. He has an Apollo Creed t- tash, doesn't he? And a bad costume. Uh, and he has a, a quite terrible costume, even in black and white. I, I hate to think what colour that is. I know. It's probably purple and green. <laughs> <laughs> because he's a bad guy. It's it's satisfying, if predictable. Yeah. Isn't it? It was nice to see them return, and I think that's a lot of the enjoyment of the story. Yeah. To return him to his roots. That we're paying off Power Man issue one. Yeah. A great deal, and the idea that they're trying to replicate the thing that caused Iron Cage, and we get Bushmaster. Um, Iron Fist is little more than a glorified guest star in this yeah, issue, yeah. but it is the beginning of the Power Man and Iron Fist team, so I figured it was worth covering. The loose ends are a little too neatly tied up, and there's a lot of comic book style touches with like the explosion at the end. Bushmaster is clearly not dead, and probably just setting up future storylines but I don't care about stuff like that because I don't think you should kill the villain every time I, he's in I like the ending as well what? no one survived that I did yeah so it is, it is kind of nodding at you know the villains never die yeah so I, yes alright I like that the actual ending ending everything blows up is again painfully predictable but just eminently enjoyable yeah it was a really good read there's a, there's a reason why things end with things exploding yeah it's fun yeah and satisfying it worked on Brainiac works on Top Gear <laughs> it worked in Star Wars it worked in, <laughs> it works in Power Man issue 49 it worked in everything in the 80s yeah blows up <laughs> do you think that was just what they had in the script yeah, yeah. for every action film in the 80s <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Free. Okay, I can go with that. That's uh, that works for me. Well, what's going to happen in today's uh, in episode of the eighties? Will blow up. Uh, what about Night Rider? It will blow up. <laughs> How will Earwolf end this week? It will blow up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, this it's got a job to do. The issue has a job to do. It's got to tie up Luke Cage's story. It's got to show that Luke and Iron Fist, and by extension Misty Knight and Colleen Wing, make a good team. And then it's got to set up the future, Power Man and Iron Fist, whilst putting a full stop on the past, which it does with aplomb. The action is exceptionally well handled. It's very exciting. The character moments are funny and interesting, and the art is simply magnificent. Mm. I loved it. And we already covered the first issue of Power Man and Iron Fist on our Christmas show. We did. 
this year or last year if you want to be picky about it so go back and listen to that and we've covered essentially Power Man 48, 49 and 50 now yeah, so just we, out of order. But we gave you the, the full story. Hey, you're non-linear, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd be made up that we did something like that. Throw our podcast up in the air. <laughs> play, play us on shuffle and see what order you get it in. I, mean, I wonder if your voice changes. Because I don't go back and listen to this filth. Yeah. So I wonder if I go back and listen to the early ones. You're still a bit squeaky. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. And then we come back to the more recent ones. And uh, you sound like you do now. Evi, yeah. Get us a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm still waiting by the way <laughs> uh, for all intents and purposes this was the end of Power Man's own book as the merged comic took on the name Power Man and Iron Fist with the next issue it ran for a further 75 issues concluding with issue 125 and a story that saw Cage framed for the murder of Iron Fist the story was hugely controversial written by Christopher Priest Fist was murdered senselessly and pointlessly after the main storyline was wrapped up, and all due to backstage posturing. See, Power Man and Iron Fist was a mid-level selling book, around 100,000 copies a month. Sales figures that Marvel would kill for nowadays, but that were only average back then. However, it had a loyal following, and was a consistent seller. Still, this didn't stop Jim Shooter from making the comic bi-monthly, a move that made editor Denny O'Neill think Shooter was deliberately killing the title, as bi-monthly moves for books always translated to lower sales. According to Priest on his website, the fact that Power Man and Iron Fist was to be replaced by a new universe title added to this feeling. To that end, the creative team decided to kill Iron Fist and pin it on Luke, and the death was to be a statement on how the creative team felt they had been treated by Marvel. Of course, you can't keep a good man down, and although Priest has said he had his own idea of how to resurrect Danny, John Byrne got to him first and brought him back in the pages of Namor the Submariner in an incredibly convoluted retcon that established that the Danny Rand that died, and indeed the Danny Rand of the last ten or so issues of Power Man and Iron Fist, wasn't Danny at all, but was in fact a clone created by the Hilrathi plant people. Comics! <laughs> John Byrne! <laughs> Anyway, Danny was back. He spent the majority of the 90s not really doing anything, leaving us perhaps to wonder if the kung fu craze that spawned him was better left in the 70s. But in the late 2000s, Ed Brubaker created the immortal Iron Fist, which seems to lead into the character being developed for a Netflix series. Brubaker was a tad arrogant when the series was announced, stating that the series had to be based on his work. After all, how many good Iron Fist stories were there? Which clearly implies he's never read The Essential Iron Fist, which is full of great Iron Fist stories. Have you ever read The Immortal Iron Fist? I have not. I read the first trade paperback. It's good. It's a true modern-day Brubaker comic, in that it's six issues that Clermont would have done one. Yeah. But you know the most disappointing thing about it? You spend all that money on a trade paperback that's nice and thick and six issues. He's only Iron Fist at the end? No, no, he's Iron Fist all the way through. It's not a retelling of his origin. It's firmly in the here and now. It's actually quite good in that respect. Right. It doesn't finish. It's okay. continued in the next trade paperback. Of course. You've got to buy the Omnibus. Of course you have. I am tempted to get Both the Omnibus. Omnibuses. Because I think him and Matt Fraction worked on it together and they only wrote it yeah. for like the first... 20 issues or so mm. so it is probably two trades or three trades and there probably is an omnibus given that Brubaker and Fraction are now yeah. popped items yeah. but yeah it's, it's good and it's recommended but it like you say it lacks the fun of these well of course it does it's <laughs> yeah, it's a post-millennial Ed Brubaker Matt Fraction comic yeah 
Well, what about Fractions? Hawkeye's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. That's not fun. At least one of them's fun. Hey, Brubaker's brilliant. I love Velvet. I don't think Brubaker's fun. No, no, oh no, he's not. He's very serious. But Matt Fraction is fun. Matt Fraction is fun. So maybe he brought the fun into the Iron Fest. Yeah. It's possible. The fun into the fist. <laughs> well, fist of fun. <laughs> fist and bush? Well, the, the fist of fun was uh, Stuart Lee Herring and Stuart Lee, wasn't it? Was Lee it? Herring, yeah. Right. In the afternoon. He had a shrine to Julia Soalha. Okay. Anyway, next time! That's it! The end, bye! <laughs> no, I, I got them in the wrong order, so I'll say that again. Uh, that's it for our coverage of four characters that are going to become TV shows. Hmm. I had a ball with that. Especially seeing it was a last-minute decision, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, we, as are most other decisions. As are most of our decisions. We were, we were just going to cover Alias. Yeah. And we were pencilling in ideas for one-issue, one-week shows, because you were waiting for Multiversity to finish, hmm. so that we could cover it, and then I just suddenly said, wait a minute... Let's just do comics that are becoming television shows. Yeah. And that's how this came about. Sometimes best ideas are spontaneous like that, and sometimes crap ideas are like that as well. <laughs> anyway, next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, Michael takes the reins, giving me two weeks off. Because I'm nice like that. Because you're nice like that, off the editing shows, as we cover Grant Morrison's Multiversity. Got anything to say? Uh, I can hear all those sighs already. <laughs> no, you've got a, you have a, a loyal coterie of people that <laughs> look forward to you covering Grant Morrison's stuff. Cool. I'm not entirely convinced they're going to look forward to me covering it. Is that like six of the 14 lessons? Yeah, yeah, six, which isn't a bad odds. It's not. It's not a bad odds. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.